Most beloved brethren, urged by necessity, I, Urban, by the permission of God, chief bishop and prelate over the whole world, have come into these parts as an ambassador with a divine admonition to you, the servants of God. But if there is in you any deformity or crookedness contrary to God's law, with divine help, I will do my best to remove it. You are called shepherds, be true shepherds, with your crooks always in your hands. For if through your carelessness or negligence a wolf carries away one of your sheep, you will surely lose the reward laid up for you with God. And after you have been bitterly scourged with remorse for your faults, you will be fiercely overwhelmed in hell, the abode of death. Although, O sons of God, you have promised more firmly than ever to keep the peace among yourselves and to preserve the rights of the church, there remains still an important work for you to do. For your brethren who live in the East are in urgent need of your help. As most of you have heard, the Turks and Arabs have attacked them and have conquered as far west as the shore of the Mediterranean. They have occupied more and more of the lands of those Christians and have overcome them in seven battles. They have killed and captured many and have destroyed the churches and devastated the empire. If you permit them to continue thus with impurity, the faithful of God will be much more widely attacked by them. On this account, I, or rather the Lord, beseech you as Christ's heralds to publish this everywhere and to persuade all people of whatever rank foot soldiers and knights poor and rich to carry aid promptly to those Christians and to destroy that vile race from the lands of our friends. Moreover, Christ commands it. All who die, whether by land or by sea or in battle against the pagans, shall have immediate remission of sins. This I grant them through the power of God with which I am invested. Oh, what a disgrace if such a despised and base race, which worships demons, should conquer a people which has the faith of omnipotent God and is made glorious with the name of Christ. With what reproaches will the Lord overwhelm us if you do not aid those who, with us, profess the Christian religion? Let those who for a long time have been robbers now become knights. Let those who have been serving as mercenaries for small pay now obtain the eternal reward. Let those who go not put off the journey, but rent their lands and collect money for their expenses. And as soon as winter is over and spring comes, let them eagerly set out on the way with God as their guide. For they won't have another one because no one's really in charge. You're listening to The Pithy Chronicle, history with a bite. I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica. And we bring you history's dirtiest deeds dripping with sarcasm. Are you hungry yet? Welcome back, Pithy listeners. I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica, here with some housekeeping, as always. Always. So here's what you've got to do. You've got to like, you've got to subscribe, and please, if you can, give us a rating and review. review. If 
you have just some generous pockets, some extra funds, you're like, I really want to help out. I really want to make Erica and Caroline's holiday season. I've got an outlet for what you. holiday? It's a, it's fall. It's the holidays. Are you just claiming all of fall to be a holiday season at this point? October, you've got Halloween, then November, Thanksgiving, and then you have all of the proper holidays in December. Oh. Yes, this is the holiday season, Caroline. It has begun, in case you weren't aware. I have okay. spoken. Fair enough. Make it so. Ooh, just like Urban. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> apparently the Pope and I are on equal footing with grammar. We've discussed. We are equal to the Popes of the Middle Ages. We know. Okay. Make our <laughs> holiday season. Make our early holiday season by joining us on Patreon if you are interested in becoming a paid subscriber or if you just want to drop us one or two dollars on buy us a coffee forward slash the Pithy Chronicle that's great too and with that what do you think of my speech I really think you missed your calling as an evangelist honestly oh did you see that movie with Jessica Chastain <gasps> she was Tammy Faye Baker girl yes. we learned all about her <laughs> Urban II's call to crusade marked the beginning of a series of military campaigns that would span several centuries, leaving a lasting impact on the relationship between Christianity and the Islamic world and shaping the course of European history to include what many of us were taught in school within the last 30 plus years. I (laughs) resent that statement. (laughs) So now that we have spewed out all of these facts and figures, most of them depressing, and we have learned about life in 1095, and we have heard the call to crusade. It was such a Debbie Downer. Right, it was. (laughs) So now we're going to put all of this stuff together, and we're going to look at what happened in the First Crusade as quickly and as efficiently and as scandalously as possible. Nice. So Urban II in 1095 made this speech at the Council of Claremont. Sort of. No, he didn't. (laughs) Correct me. Caroline, you know good and well that these accounts were not made until, what, decades after the Council of Claremont? I found five separate versions, and the one that I chose to feature was from someone who was present at the Council of Claremont, which I thought was better than some of the other options, which were people who weren't there and just heard about it like 17th hand. But still, it was something like 20 years after that he wrote it. Yeah. We're not quite sure what he said, but I think we got a gist and we can kind of recap Mm-hmm. In 1095, he made this historic call to launch the First Crusade during the Council of Claremont. And he did so in response, as we have learned, to a plea by the Byzantine Emperor Alexios, who asked for help protecting his eastern borders against these invading Turks. But Urban had bigger dreams, like any good evangelist. He urged Christians to take up arms and journey, not to Byzantium, but all the way to the Holy Land itself, specifically Jerusalem, which was under Muslim control at the time and had been for a really long time. 400 years. With no problems. It's just weird. His speech emphasized the religious significance of the Holy Land. That's nice. And framed the expedition as a sacred duty for Christians. And if we believe some of the versions we have, it was quite aggressive. You don't say. He promised spiritual rewards, including the remission of sins, to those who participated. So go on crusade, win a spot in heaven. I think you could make that more car salesman-y, Caroline. 
go on crusade and win a spot in heaven. Epic. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's a used car salesman voice, yes. specifically. To sweeten the pot, he definitely insinuated, told everyone that all of your sins would be forgiven. Like, say, if while on this exhilarating armed pilgrim holy rolling road trip, you happen to holy see... Holy rolling road trip. That's what it was. That was what it was. Maybe a little more clomping because of the horses and the walking. It's very Monty Python. <laughs> Bring me my coconuts! <laughs> if while on this exhilarating armed pilgrim holy rolling road trip, you happen to see something shiny on the way, it's cool. Pillage, loot, just make sure you throw in your Hail Marys along the way and you're good to go. All right, who took him up on this offer? As we discussed previously, it was not the kings of Western Christendom, but rather they're much more secure financially and dynastically nobles. It's hard to give official numbers as paper trails are nearly impossible to find considering the majority of the population scorned literacy. But somewhere between 70 and 80,000 people took the cross on the first crusade. And the nobility actually made up a good chunk of this group, about 20%. And to do so, they had to mortgage or sell their lands as the Pope instructed to finance their trip. And who did they exactly mortgage their land and assets to? I think they mortgaged them to the non-crusading nobles. Okay. They made deals with their neighbors. You know what it would be interesting? Hmm. If it was... The women? To the Pope. <gasps> oh, that's dirty. Let's be fair. Urban is trying to set himself up as the legitimate pope. We just got through the investiture controversy and the anti-pope was still looming. Oh, it's awkward. Yeah. So what exactly did they need to finance? <gasps> did they get to go on a holy rolling shopping spree? Oh my spree? God, kind of. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> they went to Knights R Us and bought all the gear. Because <laughs> it was going to take a long time to get there. And it wasn't like the noble was just paying for his own way. He had to pay for all of his knights to go, and then the men that had sworn allegiance to them, and da da da, da all the way down. These knights, they needed horses, yeah. and they didn't want just one. They needed at least four mm-hmm. per person. One super big, heavy war horse that was bred for battle, Clydesdale-esque. And of course, a sleek riding horse that wouldn't chafe their manly bits as they rode across Eurasia. Heaven forbid something happened to the manly bits. Yep, it's real rough. I mean, Mm. immediate heavenly ascension if you lose your manly bits. They also needed their gear, Mm. chain mail. It was very expensive, but also very important. Originally, like when chainmail came out in the mid-11th century, the cost prevented covering much more than just the vital organs. But by the end of the First Crusade, you'll find that most armies were covering their arms, their legs, their head with something called a halbrek made of chainmail. So you have the interwoven pieces of steel and iron that create chainmail, and underneath you wear this big bulky padding. Yeah, like football pads so you don't chafe. Yeah, ex- well, we can't be chafing. Yeah, not the manly bits. Yeah. 
And not the manly bits. And then the helmet, the silly looking helmet. Well, and the shields. And a, a wooden shield. The shields changed a lot too. Initially they were the mm-hmm. circle shields and then they came to be the shields that cover the legs while you're riding. For weapons, they carried thrusting spears, slashing swords, and the menacing double-headed axe made popular by those Vikings. One of the most famous wielders of the double-headed axe in the First Crusade is actually a bishop. Odo of Bayeux, like the Bayeux Tapestry, he was the half-brother of Billy the Conk. That's William the Conqueror taken... for those of us that aren't on a nickname basis. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> but Mr. 1066. I'm never going to not call him Billy the Conk. <laughs> because he was a bishop or a religious holy man, Odo of Bayeux was not allowed to spill blood, but he could bludgeon people to death. So that's why he used the double-headed axe or a mace. Which I'm going to say, if you hit my face with a mace... I'm going to bleed. I'm going to bleed. <laughs> but yeah. He was a clergyman, so he couldn't spill blood, but he was happy to kill people anyway. Mm-hmm. So all of this must be paid for. And then there's food, there's water, clothing, tents. It was a logistical nightmare. But it was one that Western Europeans were prepared for. The leaders of the First Crusade were really the heirs to a very impressive military tradition going back centuries in Western Europe. And frankly, their victories during the First Crusade, which took place in a vastly different geographic and climatic conditions, than they were accustomed to. And that can and should be attributed to their logistical prowess, their advanced armaments, and the leadership of the First Crusade. While at the beginning I said no one was really leading, which is true, they still had very capable warriors that were in charge of these armies. And even if the armies couldn't get their shit together to be all coordinated, within an individual army there was leadership. And while we romanticize this time with images of steel-clad knights, Most of the armies in the Middle Ages were overwhelmingly infantry, not cavalry, aka the knights. That being said, the knights were still the decisive element in the army, even if they only comprised one of seven combatants. But knight or infantry, all of them rolled with a holy fervor. Rolled into that road trip. Rolling with my homies. Well, actually, in general, the Crusaders were not a group of fanatic religious zealots, with the exception (laughs) of the People's Crusade. Tell me about that. Okay, I'm going to do this as quick and dirty as possible. Yes, quick. In a nutshell, it all started with a guy named Peter the Hermit. Or Peter the Stinky. (laughs) He was the original influencer of the medieval world. Strutting around, preaching, waving his very smelly hermit robes, he rallied the everyman, plus their women and children saying, forget those fancy knights, we can crusade too. It was a very DIY crusade. No armor, no training, just pure enthusiasm. Make sure you pin it on your Pinterest board. <laughs> like any zealous group of 20,000 people, they were hard to control. They got a bit carried away. And before the official first crusade even began, as in before the experienced knights and armies were able to get their shit together, sell their lands, on their armor, Peter's crew charged ahead, causing chaos along the way. They were very rowdy, very anti-Semitic, and very deadly to both themselves and others. Eventually it all fell apart. The few who made it to Byzantium because none of them made it to Jerusalem. But those who made it to Byzantium were not a pleasant sight for poor Alexios, the Byzantine emperor, who basically shoved them out the door. Oh, he didn't even open the door. He was like, (laughs) go around the city. He pointed that away and encouraged them to, you know, give it their all, which got them all killed. 
the end. Ta-da! And now we're done with the People's Crusade. So we're gonna go back to the so real crusade. So we don't actually know what happened to Peter the Hermit. It is assumed that he died, but there's no actual evidence that he died on the crusade. So it's possible he could have ditched out because apparently Peter, in addition to being a hermit and smelly, was also a coward and would run away from the battles. But as a clergyman, he really wasn't supposed to be fighting Erica. He was supposed to be leading all of these other people to their deaths. I'm sorry, but if Odo can do it, Peter should too. Pick up that mace. (laughs) Along with their fully equipped knights, but they have mortgaged their lands to pay for, their horses, their infantry armies, they all came to help. But with all of that, there also came the help. Because someone has to do all the crappy jobs. Roughly 20% of the enormous crusading force were non-combatants. Cooks, clerics, families, servants, prostitutes. And yes, I said clerics because most of them didn't don a mace. All of these came along to support the brave soldiers of Christendom. Now we're getting down to brass tacks. I love it. The major armies that participated in the First Crusade were those of Bohemond of Toronto. What a name. He fought in both the First Crusade and the Crusade of 1101, which is not to be mistaken for the Second Crusade. The 1101 Crusade was more like an epilogue to Crusade Number 1 and is frequently labeled the Faint-Hearted Crusade, which pretty much sums it up. Not enough people, not enough effort. There was Godfrey of Bouillon's group, which feels like a bouillon cube? Like, Like, yeah. Oh, love it. It's very meaty. No, it wasn't. (laughs) He was flavorful, but nobody to support it. Well, his army, (laughs) or his lineage, fielded the first three kings of Jerusalem after they, spoiler, did take Jerusalem in the final battle of the crusade. There was the Provençal army of Raymond of Saint-Gilles, who also fielded an army for the 1101 epilogue event. There was the army of Robert Curthose of Normandy. And that does mean the Normans arrived, the Vikings. And they were led by the eldest son of William the Conqueror, who was still trying to work out that awkward place between King of England and Vassal of France. Robert II of Flanders showed up with his crew, and so did Hugh of Vermandois, the son of King Henry I of France. But it's rumored that the prince actually fled the battlefield, which is... Very unknightly. Like Peter the Hermit, not company you want to keep. And finally, we have my favorite, Stephen of Blois. And it's not just because I like to say Blois, but also because I love his wife, Adela. Stephen headed out with his army because his I wear the pants badass lady was the daughter of Willie the Conk. And she told him on no uncertain terms to get his ass out there and go on crusade. Do it. But like the French prince... Stephen also fled after the Battle of Antioch, returning home with his tail and very tight codpiece between his legs. His wife was not pleased. She publicly ridiculed him and privately withheld sex until he promised to return to Jerusalem, which he did just in time for the faint-hearted crusade, describing his attitude to a T, and then he died. Oh, Oh, well. Well, this is not the same Stephen of Blois that becomes King of England. That's his dad. Is it his dad or his granddad? I'm pretty sure it's his dad because Adela is... Yeah, 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 yeah. Adela is his mom. So at least he has Adela's genes because Stephen's seem a bit lackluster. Well, let's be honest. He does seem a little bit like chip off the old block. There you go. If only he had a little more of Adela's uh, genes in there. 
God love her. God love her. While Byzantium Emperor Alexios wasn't happy with the Pope's call for holy war in Jerusalem, he did end up fielding a few armies as well, though he did not partake in the battles himself. His armies and navies had great experience in combat with the Turks and thus offered advice, if not always assistance, and participated in fun little skirmishes like the Siege of Nicaea. So now that we have all the major players, let's quickly outline their journey. Love it. From Western Europe to Jerusalem was arduous and perilous. It was an adventure that spanned several years. The initial gatherings of European armies occurred in late 1096, more than a year after Pope Urban requested this aid slash threatened eternal damnation if they didn't help. These groups of crusaders slash armies assembled in various locations across Western Europe, mainly France, the Rhineland, and Northern Italy, and it was all a bit hodgepodge. These main armies then departed between 1096 and 1097, led by those important dudes that I already mentioned. They moved eastward through Hungary and into the Byzantine territories, eventually making it to Constantinople, where they received provisions and support from Alexios. Ish. Ish. Yeah. The first major military engagement was that Siege of Nicaea in 1097. After a lengthy siege that included catapulting cows over the fortified walls out of sheer desperation, the Crusaders successfully captured the city in June of that year and then continued on their way marching through Anatolia. This march wasn't fun. <laughs> there was little to no food or drinkable water. The Turkish forces were constantly berating them. They were walking through Turkish lands. It all makes sense. And toward the end of 1097, the Crusaders finally reached Antioch and proceeded to lay yet another siege. This one lasting a year. And Antioch, while held by the Muslims, was a Christian city. <laughs> Food shortages and internal strife within the Crusader ranks made the situation dire, but they eventually captured the city in June of 1098, killing a lot of Christians along with everyone else. Literally, they slaughtered everyone in the city. Then the Crusaders continued their march through the Levant, facing more battles and more challenges as they moved south toward Jerusalem. They secured key coastal cities like Tripoli. Oh, Tripoli! Yeah. Like the Marines! <laughs> okay, now that song's stuck in my head. Finally in 1099, after a hellish journey to get to heaven, <laughs> the Crusaders reached Jerusalem and initiated a siege again in June. Despite facing determined defenders, they managed to breach the city walls and capture Jerusalem in July of 1099. The event culminated in a brutal and bloody assault. After a final desperate push, the Crusaders breached the city walls and overran Jerusalem, but the capture of the city was accompanied by widespread violence and massacres, kind of like all their other sieges. Mm. With many of Jerusalem's inhabitants, including Muslims and Jews and Christians, falling victims to the Crusaders' wrath. This event marked the establishment of the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem and the beginning of a period of Christian rule in the Holy Land, which would last for nearly a century, but that is a tale for another day. We have Jerusalem. Mission accomplished. They, I don't want to associate with these people except for Adela. Did I say we? You did. So they have Jerusalem. Now what? Well, most of them went home. Girl, bye. Mm-hmm. They, they'd accomplished their goal, as you said. They missed their families. They were going broke. It was time to skedaddle. Which left the very few there, holding the bag, completely confused about what to do next. Who would lead? Who would follow? 
How do you revive a city, the inhabitants of which you've just slaughtered? So many fun questions. What are the answers? Well, we're not going to talk about it this time. What? <laughs> um, the answer was that, as I said, Godfrey of Bouillon did stay, and he refused the title of King of Jerusalem and took something slightly less audacious. But he only died like a year later, and then the rest of them took on King of Jerusalem. So they did end up having people stay. But it was really hard to defend a city when it took all of these warriors to conquer it. And then they all left. And so they're sitting there like, we rule here. And then people slowly started to filter back into the city. And um, it didn't take long for them to lose control. I'm shocked. And to start making deals with the Muslims and the Jews. What? Which is so weird. Wow, the economy won't work if we don't have any kind of trade with these Oh people. my God, I'm shocked. This is my shocked face. Before we wrap this up in an ugly, bloodied bow, let's take a look at the role of women in the First Crusade, because that's really why we're here. To his slight credit, Urban II, in his lovely little speech that we may or may not know about, did urge women, the poor and the elderly, to stay home. Not out of fear for their well-being, mind, but because they would slow the warriors down. Yeah, so not to his credit. Bump him. Well, at least he knew they would slow things down. <laughs> However, his advice was often ignored. There were a handful of extremely wealthy women who took the cross in order to accompany their powerful husbands. For example, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who went on the second crusade with her first husband. Not to worry, we're going to dive into her life and story and all the fun scandalous details in a few weeks. There were also plenty of regular Janes that went on the trip. Cooks, washerwomen, servants, all of which were needed to support the armies. These women, we don't think, took a vow or took the cross. So they weren't technically crusaders, and history has often written them off. But they were crusading, and they endured yeah. all the hardships, and they died just as frequently. The armies also attracted a lot of followers, groupies, prostitutes, yes, who sold their services to the crusading forces. Despite being a large part of this crusading experience, sources don't often mention them because A, this was supposed to be a Christian endeavor, and B, they're women, so who cares? Actually, the Western European sources don't mention them a lot, but the Islamic sources do, and... <laughs> And pointing out hypocrisies left. There right. is actually going to be at least a mini-sode on one particular saint, as a matter of fact, who was a prostitute during the Crusades. Excellent. The only times that they are brought up in the Western sources are in relation to pre-battle purifications when the prostitutes would be kicked out of camp to, you know, please God. <laughs> next week, and the next few weeks after that. We are going to take a closer look at some of the most interesting female players of the First Crusade, beginning with Anna Comnena, the daughter of Byzantine Emperor Alexios, whose histories offer us an amazing insight into the Byzantine response to the First Crusaders, as well as the life of a woman whose world was under siege. Till then, I'm Caroline. And I'm Erica. And we are Pithily Yours. This episode is brought to you by The Pithy Chronicle, LLC. The Pithy Chronicle is intended for education, entertainment, and non-commercial purposes. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the owner may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity. While we offer lots of sarcasm, this podcast does not offer any advice or services. Listening to this podcast may induce fits of laughter, unexpected distraction, or uncontrollable rage at the subjects. Hopefully not at us. We hope you learned something today. If not, so sorry. Please be advised we are not experts in the following fields. Medical, legal, financial, technological, thermonuclear engineering, 
Engineering, Submarine Warfare, Neuroscience, or Cat Husbandry. Thanks for listening to our little disclaimer. Just covering our history-loving asses. Bye!